Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. So if, uh, if you've been with us for a while, then we've been preaching through the, uh, the uh, epistle of 1 John. And if you're not, uh, having been with us for a while, this is a great time to come because it's the last week. But what's great about it being the last week is that, in a sense, it's a summary of everything that has come before. Um, reading First John, if, if you have ever read through the book or if you've been tracking along as we've been studying it together, it's a lot like talking to, to my granddad. And when you talk to my granddad, you, hear, you would hear a lot of the same stories over and over and over again. And, you know, he would tell you stories about how he grew up in Ohatchee, Alabama, and he was so proud of that. And he would tell you all these stories about how growing up, he barely had two pennies to rub together, and he, you know, lived through sort of the back end of the Great Depression. He got himself uh, to a stable place. He put himself through school. He became principal at a couple of different elementary schools in the Atlanta area. He then was especially proud of how he ended his career at the Fulton County there in North Atlanta uh, pension board. And many of those, including my mom, who are retired teachers now, are enjoying the fruit of his labors. And he would tell story after story about all those kind of things. One particular story that he loved to tell was one about uh, this little boy who was uh, part of his school at one of the elementary schools that he was a principal at. And this boy was kind of rough around the edges. He was one that was kind of, you know, he was on the fringes and he would, you know, do a lot of scowling and do a lot of arm crossing and he would, you know, be the, sitting at the back of the class not want to participate. He has a temper. And one day, he had a, an especially big blow up. And, you know, you couldn't do this at any other school these days, but back in his day, the kid just literally walks out of the classroom and leaves and starts walking down the road. And so my granddad gets in his uh, Chevy pickup truck and he goes right after him. And he's driving down the road and he comes up to him and he slows down and he looks out the passenger side window and he says, I don't remember what his name is, let's call him Johnny. He, he says, Johnny, get in this car. And, and my granddad loved to do the, uh, the way that Johnny responded. He would he shrugged his shoulders like this, and he said, I ain't getting in that old truck. And then my granddad's response was, either you're getting in the truck, or I'm coming down there and bringing you in the truck out of that ditch. And nobody wants to see us wrestling in this ditch on the side of the road, okay? So get in the truck. And the little kid kind of sloughs over, gets in the truck, and on the drive back calms down and, you know, has a chance to to think about what he's done, enters back into class, ends up developing a really neat relationship uh, and friendship with my granddad, and that was one of those proud moments that he had. John is an old man by this point. He has seen a lot. He has lived a lot. 
He, he has experienced the Lord Jesus walking around, and he has been who he describes as the disciple who Jesus loved most. And here he is. He is, he is walking along towards the end of his life, and he's thinking about what is the most important thing. You know, when you get older, you start thinking about legacy. What am I going to leave behind? And in a sense, this is a, a, a personal testimony of what he hopes to leave behind. And so he's been cycling through these stories. He's been cycling through these stories that God is light, he's pure, that God is love, and that God is, God is both light and love at the same time, and in one sense, that he is also the life, the life of the world. And so, you know, maybe like my granddad, kind of as we've been reading through these and working through these the past number of weeks, you may have come to a spot where you've been like, I feel like I've heard this before. Like, I, that story is familiar to me. I've heard that song and dance. And hey, granddad, why are, we weren't even talking about elementary school, and you just brought up that kid again. And in some sense, it's like, John, you're bringing up the same things over and over again. I mean, we may have lost a little bit of where exactly he's going. So like a great writer, John summarizes everything that he has been teaching over these five chapters in just a few verses here at the end. And he does a very similar thing in John 20 at the very end of his gospel. And he says the, very succinctly, the purpose of that book is these things are written so that you may believe. So it's an evangelistic tone in the book of John. Now in the book of 1 John, he says something very similar that we're about to read, but it's with a different purpose. He says, I write these things to you that you may know. The previous book was about your belief. Now it's about your assurance. So let's read this summary of the book of 1 John in the very remaining verses, 13 through 21 together. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That is, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Uh, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, Son, and Spirit, I ask that you would enlighten our eyes and enliven our hearts to your word would you show us Christ would you write your good law onto our hearts more and more that more tomorrow than today and more Tuesday than Monday and more next Sunday than today we would love you and not only love you but be assured 
of your love for us. And so use this time we have together, use this scripture that's in front of us towards that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, if, if the gospel of John, the purpose of which was evangelism, they were saying, this is all the great things that Jesus did. Now this second book, this epistle of 1 John is about assurance. How can I know that I know that I am right with him and that he loves me? And he must have known that his people and everyone following after him would struggle with assurance, that we would struggle with who, who are we and how, does God, how is God pleased with us or displeased with us based on what we do and don't do in any given week? He would know that we would struggle when we wake up in the morning to know, is God pleased with me today or not? He would know that as we spend time more and more living in this world, that we would also struggle to believe that if, with all of this mess that we see out here, that he is still in control. And with all of this mess that is in here, that he is still in control. And so we're going to look at three fruits of assurance. Three things that if we are assured in Christ, if we are assured of his love for us, based not on our work, but based on his, if the way that this whole book starts, 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If that's true, then how does that begin to work it out in our lives? That's what we have before us today. And so we're going to see that assurance sort of breeds or fuels three things. There's three outcomes of what assurance inside brings outside. The first is assurance in prayer. The second is assurance in purity. And the third is assurance and personal relationship with God. So assurance and prayer. He jumps right in, verse 13. I write these things that you may believe, and this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we have anything, ask anything according to his will. So you can see this up on the screen. What's the difference in when you were a kid in asking your dad something that you were pretty sure that he was going to say yes to? as opposed to asking him something that he was most likely going to say no to. You know, so if you were to go to your dad and say, hey, dad, can I start my homework now? Right? Of course. Yes, that's great. Hey, dad, can you go buy me some new toothpaste? I have a dentist appointment in a month, and I'm just pretty sure that he would want me to work on my flossing. So can you get some of those little flossers with the U-shaped thing? Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. Hey, dad, can you pass me the broccoli? I love broccoli. Right? Of course, these are going to be the things that, that as a father, any good father would say, yes, of course, I would love for you to have those things. I'm going to leave right now and go get those little flosser things. As opposed to, what, when you asked your father, did you kind of ask it like this? Like, hey, dad, can I play video games instead of doing my homework? Hey, dad, can, can I maybe have some ice cream instead of dinner? Uh, hey, I hear all the kids saying yes. Uh, hey, Dad, can I jump off of the roof onto the trampoline? Right, where you almost ask it with like a question mark at the end. There is, there is an assuredness that when you ask your father, here's the key verse, and you see it right here, according to his will, that the father leans in and loves to answer those kinds of prayers. Now, we got to investigate that little phrase a little bit, though. 
Because how do we know what is God's will? Here's what we know it's not. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things are the Lord's. And so there are, there are many things in the plan of God, in the foreknowledge of God, that we just don't know. Like, what is, how do dinosaurs fit in to the whole creation narrative of God? I don't know. Like, there are all of these, these very detailed things that the scriptures do not give us a detailed explanation of. That's okay. He's the creator. We're the creature. We don't know exactly how our life's going to play out tomorrow. We don't know how our life's going to play out in a year or two years or five or ten. We don't know when our last day will be. All we know is we got today. The secret things are the Lord's. But here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. Right? So, of all the things that we do not know, what the Lord has given us in his revealed word is he's given us plenty to work with. He's given us plenty to begin to piece a life together that we can know for sure I am right with God. We can know for sure he is pleased with how I am living. We can know for sure what is his heart towards what, how I should organize my life. All of those things are plain in the scriptures. And so when we ask things that are according to his will, he hears us, meaning we ask him things that are in line with the truths of scripture. He's given us the Ten Commandments. He's given us the Lord's Prayer. He's given us the Great Commission. He's giving us the teachings of the early church that we can then model ourselves and our lives and our churches after. He's given us plenty. And so what does it look like to begin to not just pray sort of these global prayers of, God, I pray that you would give me more money. Or I pray that, you know, so maybe that prayer to win the lottery maybe is not the best one to keep praying. What would it look like to narrow that prayer? What would it look like to narrow and say, Father, I'm not sure how I'm going to pay my bills next month. What would it look like to narrow that prayer and say, Father, I so deeply want to be generous. Will you give me an abundance so I can begin to work out that kind of generosity? That's, that's the kind of thing, the more that you search the scriptures, begins to line up with what is according to his will. And those are the things that he leans in and he loves to give to his kids. Now, I want to give a, uh, a little plug right here. I don't have my phone with me. I meant to. Um, if you've heard of the book A Praying Life by Paul Miller, there's a, uh, a tool in there called prayer cards. And the idea is that you have a prayer card and it's for every person in your life or maybe a certain situation in a person's life. And you have a scripture heading on the top of that card. He calls this putting the word to work. And so here's what it might look like to begin to pray according to his will. On this app that you can download on your iPhone or Android, there's a list of scriptures. And it's just one of those scrolly lists that you flip up like you do your Instagram feed, but it's a lot more helpful to your soul. And, and you can pick any one of those scriptures. If I want to pray for humility, then I can flip through and I can find the section on humility. If I want to pray for generosity, I can flip through and find that. If I want to pray for a particular sin that is just so eating me up right now, I can flip through and find that and begin to pray the scriptures. In that sense, if anything is according to his will, it's the direct words out of it. And so in that way, you can put the word to work. You know, if you're mad at somebody, what would it look like to, instead of venting and sort of praying these big prayers like, God, I'm so mad at this person. Help me to feel happy towards them or whatever. What would it look like to pray really specifically? 
to think about places in Scripture where God has, or Jesus has actually lived that out. What does it look like when Jesus is flipping over tables? Okay, well, then there's some kind of maybe righteous anger category that could be possible. Most likely not coming out of us most of the time. Uh, you know, so then what would it look like to think about, what does it look like to love my enemies? What does it look like uh, to pray for those who persecute me? What does it look like uh, to, to watch Jesus dying, a self-sacrificing, dying love in the face of nothing but persecution? And then those kinds of things that begin to, can begin to shape your prayers that begin to shape how you live. Okay. And as much as you ask what he is according to his will, that is what he loves to give. So let's move on. Assurance and purity. Verses 18 and 19. We're going to roll in verse 16 and 17 to the next section. Assurance does this to our hearts. It purifies it. It purifies our motives. The Holy Spirit comes in, and according to John 16, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us according to sin and righteousness and judgment, to show us what's good, to show us what's bad, to cut us on those places that we really need to be cut, and to push us into the places where we need to go. But there's a little phrase right here that if we were to gloss over it, it would be very confusing, and so I want to spend a couple of minutes. John essentially is saying, here's an example. Here's an example of a particular way that you could pray according to God's will. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, meaning pray. So what is this saying? The application is, if you see a brother, meaning brother or sister in Christ, someone else already who is a believer, if you see them in sin, it is always according to the will of God to pray for that person. It also very much likely could be the will of God to approach that person, to be honest with that person, to try to call them out of whatever that is, all of those things are very much in line with the will of God. Now, here's what he says that may be confusing. What in the world is a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death? Here's the difference. Very quickly. A sin leading to death, the only sin that can lead to death is a rejection of Christ. Because here's what we know. The worst sin that the worst person in the worst scenario, on the worst part of the globe, at the worst part in history, can be forgiven in Christ. And so then, greater to lesser argument, if that can happen, then so can anything that any of us bring to the table. The only thing that cannot be forgiven by an unbeliever is a rejection of Jesus. Right? So the unforgivable sin, there's no one secret sin that if you somehow stumble upon it and do that thing, that God will somehow cast you out. The only sin that will cast you out is the recognition that you don't think you're cast out. But to approach God with a repentant heart, you can bring anything to him. So the sin leading to death is just that which is a rejection of Christ. And he's saying, I'm not even really talking about that right now. I'm not talking about praying for unbelievers. I'm really trying to focus your prayers and my thoughts into how do you pray for the people in the household of God? So that's sort of an aside, but I didn't want to leave that sitting out here in case you went home and wondered for the rest of the week, am I committing the unpardonable sin? Um, 
There is, a, I think, a really helpful application to this, though. If we move on to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Let's think about that for a minute. Everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. Those of you who would consider yourself Christians, do you keep on sinning? Like last week? Like today? Like maybe five minutes ago? Right? We've got to define what keep on sinning means. Here's what it doesn't mean. There's no talk of perfectionism in here. Because what did we just hear? Hey, if a brother, if you see a brother sinning, pray for him. And so this can't mean that somehow there is a way to be perfect, and that's the goal of the Christian life. No, it's very much the opposite. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith Chapter 18, section 4, says it like this, because there may be those of us that, even today, are wondering, man, I just don't feel, I don't feel like I used to about Jesus. Like, there was a time in my life when I was excited. Like, there's a reason why that prayer in the Psalms restored to me the joy of my salvation. There, there's a reason that that's in there. Right? There, is, there is something that we can gain and have great times with the Lord, and then there's other places where we can just fall flat. What is that? Here's the goodness of the Westminster Confession. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken. May have. So this is a, an acceptable category if this is where you are today, or if a close friend or family member is. May have their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways. As by negligence and persevering it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or violent temptation, or by God's withdrawal, withdrawing his, the light of his countenance and allowing even those who, uh, who reverence him to walk in darkness and have no light. Yet true believers are never completely deprived of that seed of life. True believers are never deprived of that seed of God and life of faith that love of Christ and fellow believers, that sincerity of heart and conscience concerning duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. So here's what that's saying. There may be times when your faith waxes and wanes, but there is one who does not wax and wane. Verse 20. The one, he who was born of God. He who was born of God protects him or her. Believers in Christ, he who was born of God protects you. Why? Because you need it. Why? Because I need it. Right? In and of ourselves, we are doomed. If you've tried to just live with yourself for a day <laughs> you go man if this life is up to me lord come quickly but he protects those that he loves and he does that in three ways we can think of the one who was born to die jesus or i'm sorry the one who was born of god he was born to live right he was born to live 
this perfect life. Yet, while much of what this describes, this passage from the Westminster Confession describes about losing the light of God, about times where assurance is shaky and struggling, where there may be violent temptations, guess who experienced that to the full? Jesus, the Son of God, did. Yet, without sin. So the Son of God was born to live. The Son of God was also born to die. Right? If what we know to be true from those verses that we just read about prayer is that there is sin that leads to death, and that's what do we say? Anything that's outside of Christ. Any of us that are not covered by Christ, there is one final destination for us, and that's death and hell. Because God is holy. Because he's just. Because there would be no other way that his holiness and his love could be quelled outside of Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He's born to die. He's born to die in our stead, in our place. And not only is he born to live, not only is he born to die, he's born to rise again. After three days, Jesus rises again, and then after ascending, his spirit falls so that, what did it say? By the operation of the spirit, this assurance will be revived. You do not keep yourself in. The spirit does. It is not up to your goodness to maintain your salvation. It is up to Jesus's. And so if that's true, then it assures us and we can cry out to our Father and ask him what things that are according to his will, knowing that he loves to shower us with good things. We can walk with him in purity of life. And finally, we can enjoy the personal relationship that we have with him. Right? This idea of personal relationship with Jesus, used, that was like the pitch right down the middle for evangelism for the past 50 years. Hey, would you like a personal relationship with God? Would you like a personal relationship? Would you? Would you? Would you? Right? You could just walk down the street and be like pitching pitch fastballs right down the center. So maybe that term's gotten a little overused, but let's bring it back. Right? Because the, the way that verse 20 and 21 describe this is that there should be an enjoyment because it's not just that we have, we may know about God. It's not just so that we may know that God exists or we may know that our sins are forgiven. But what does it say? The Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know Him. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of life itself, Christian or not, is to know God. And so you may remember, uh, kids, this one's for you. You may remember in the movie Elf, right? Everybody remember the movie Elf? It's coming around. Christmas is coming soon, even though it's hot as blazes outside. We'll get to Christmas eventually. You've seen the movie. And there's that part when he's in the middle of the department store and they announce over the intercom that Santa's coming, right? And he goes, Santa, I know him. Right? And he's so excited that here comes Santa, the real Santa, all the way from the North Pole. I can't believe it. Right? The joy that he has for knowing the real true Santa is this like infectious thing that just overflows. And the way that he ends in verse 21 sounds maybe kind of odd, but I think we can explain it. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Because as Elf goes up and sits in Santa's lap and he sort of turns to him, what does he do? He smells him. And then what does he say? 
He says, you're not Santa. You smell like beef and cheese. <laughs> right? When, when we get up close to things that aren't God, right? When we get up close to our own approval and good looks and the ability for us to, to bring money our way and to control life and to, to cobble for ourselves together this easy road, this easy life on our own accord. When you get close enough to those things, you just go, you're not God. There's something so much more satisfying out there. There's something so much more that I can stake my life on and I know will not ultimately suck me dry, but will fill me and fuel me not only in this life and the next, you're not God. I know, I know God. I know where I can find him. I know where I can talk to him. I know that he listens. I know that he's giving me exactly what I need. I know that I can walk in purity before him. And I know that he is pleased. And so J.I. Packer says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place in their own accord. Would this be true of us? And so what we're going to do now is celebrate together, and for two of our newest communing members, they'll be doing this for the first time, is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in, in a very real sense, this is knowing the Lord, right? As we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we remember and we don't just remember up here that Jesus really was who he said he was, that he really did live, that he really did die in our stead. We're not just remembering that up here, but we're remembering that down here. We're remembering that he didn't just die, he had to die, and he had to die for me. And so there's three questions for anyone who would come to the table today. The first is, um, you know, according to 1 Corinthians 11, are you right with him? Do you know Jesus? Has there been a time in your life where you have bowed the knee and you have said, not my will, but yours? Where you've said what these two guys up here said, I am a sinner, justly deserving your displeasure without hope except in your sovereign mercy. Is there a time where that has happened to you? Secondly, are you connected to a community of believers? That doesn't have to be this church, but are there other believers who know that you know him, who can vouch for your faith? Because this is a table. It's a really small table. But the idea would be if this thing would fill the room and we were each sitting at a place around it, right? This is a family affair, the family of God affair. And so are you in the family of God? And thirdly, are you in right relationship with that family? Or is there anyone right now, not perfect relationship because we all know life is hard and things are messy, but is there anyone right now in your heart that you would have such a sense of resentment towards that even if they asked you for forgiveness, you would say, no, I can't. I won't. If those three things are true of you, then this table's for you because this is a table of peace, a table of unity, a table of reconciliation between God and men and between men and men. And so those three things being true, I would invite you to come. Uh, because of corona and all of those crazy things, we've switched things up a little bit. So you can see we've got the individual cups uh, that have the little wafer on top. It's not made of plastic. I promise it won't harm you. It just tastes like it. Um, so it'll take you a minute to peel the top layer off without exploding the juice part. So I'll give you a minute. 
Um, how we're going to do this is we'll go row by row. You can come up. There's one on the left. There's one on the right. You can come up, grab your cup, and sit back in your seat. Spend a little bit of time opening that. And then don't take it yet because we will take that together as a symbol of our unity. Uh, and so in the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord took bread and he broke it. And he said, as often, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he poured it out and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. So Father, I pray that you would set aside these very ordinary means of grace for a very supernatural use. Uh, would you fuel us and fill us and enliven us by your spirit as we taste and see that the Lord is good? Do that by your grace. We trust in you. Amen. You can come ahead. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. And the blood of Christ, shed for the remission of your sins. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray once more. Father, we are so thankful for the work that you have done for us. We're so thankful for your, the sending of your dearly loved son uh, so that we may have life.
He was born to live. He was born to die. He was born to rise again. And in him and him alone do we stake our life. In him and him alone do we stake our assurance. In him and him alone do we stake our eternity. Please fill us for the good works that you have, before the foundation of the world, set out for us to do. Would we walk in prayer? Would we walk in purity? And would we walk in personal relationship with you this week and forevermore? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.